for the amount of morbidity of, say, heart disease versus depression. Depression gets funded at about 30 cents in the dollar to heart disease. Psychic. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Psychic Podcast. My name is Amos, and today I'm psyched to be chatting with Professor Steve Allen. Steve is a semi-retired professor of psychiatry at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, and is passionate about health communication. Tell us a bit about yourself, Steve. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Amos. This is um, good fun for me. It's so exciting when you're starting your medical career that it makes me excited. You know, it's great for me chatting to med students because I love it because I still remember my very first day of uni. I still remember my uni course, all the bits and pieces. And whilst I always remember there was lots of struggles, you know, you, it's like any education. You look back on it with so much fondness that it's um, fun to sort of be um, jumping into that scene again. So a little bit about me. Oh, God, where do I, I mean, what did you say? Let's see. So I was a medical student in Melbourne. I was born and raised in Melbourne. And I uh, went to school in Melbourne and then went to Melbourne Uni. And uh, it was a six-year course. It took me seven years because, um, unfortunately, the examiners thought I should do one of the years twice. I think they liked me and they wanted to keep me company. And then after I finished uh, um, uni, I was an intern at a hospital called Austin Hospital in Melbourne. And then I stayed there for about 10 years and did my psych training there. And so I became a psychiatrist. And then when I finished my psych training, I did I did a master's concurrently, which a lot of psych registrars do. So I did a master's of psychiatry. And then when I finished my psych, I did a doctorate. And I studied benzodiazepine receptors in post-traumatic stress disorder and panic disorder. So a neuropharmacology doctorate in neuroreceptors. And then... Uh, and also, my master's was in HIV. And so then after that, I was a psychiatrist at the Austin for a couple of years. And I'd done a lot of HIV work. So then I moved across to be head. When I was quite junior, I was only two, two three years out, I became head of uh, consultation liaison and emergency psychiatry at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, which is the sort of the biggest trauma hospital in Melbourne. It's one of the two biggest hosp- in the you know, city hospitals. And so I stayed there 16 years. And I uh, worked in HIV, a whole lot of other um, consultation liaison psych settings, um, burns, trauma, heart transplants, um, lung transplants, um, all sorts of other really cool things, like the first mechanical hearts I assessed patients for. So I did a whole lot of really fun things. And I did a little bit of research on the side, like, you know, cottage industry research, I'd call it. So I studied uh, my main research areas were health communication. I did a bit on that. I did a bit on CL, looking at consult, um, various consequences of, psych, of um, medical disorders, in particular trauma and the psych consequences. And so I became an associate professor at Monash Uni. And then when I was around, so this is getting towards the end now, thankfully. Um, and when I was about 55, I thought, oh, I might semi-retire and do something different. I wanted to become a writer and write fiction. I'd written some medical texts, a couple of medical textbooks and a general public medical textbook along the way because of my interest in health communication. And so I thought I'll semi-retire and do that. And then Peter Mack, which is a big cancer centre in Melbourne, offered me a job to go across there as the director of psychosocial oncology. They just built a brand new billion dollar hospital. Joe Biden opened it. It's a big deal. And so they decided to revamp their psych. 
And so I said, okay, one more last big mental health, one last big, you know, career project. So I went across there to help build up the psychosocial service, which is psychiatry, psychology, social work and um, and uh, music therapy and uh, set up some of the psych research over there. And so that was a really fun, you know, so I decided it was worth putting off retirement to do that. Ended up staying there six years because I loved it so much, such a great hospital. And I still actually am on staff there just a little bit as uh, um, sort of just providing some clinical advice to the wellbeing and prevention service. And so now I've been retired about a year and I'm writing a novel, pure fiction. Yeah, pure fiction. And I did a few other hobbies along the way. But anyway, that was essentially my career. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Tell us about your books that you've written. So along the way, I, you know, I wrote a few academic articles and then I started getting a bit sick of that after about 10, 15 years because, you know, it really struck me. No one ever reads them. You write these academic articles that you're so proud of, takes you a couple of years to do the research, a year or two to get it published. <laughs> you're so excited. I shouldn't be saying this. It makes its academic work sound a bit negative. Um, and, but... Uh, you know, I liked the academic work. You know, I ended up a professor at Melbourne University um, in the end and still am. Um, so I liked it, but I really felt that the impact wasn't that great. I really felt that you write these academic articles, and unless it's something that gets into something like nature, you know, there's thousands of these articles written a year, and they really don't do that much. And so I decided that it was more, you know, I went on this path. Look, I started teaching registrars, obviously, as a junior psychiatrist. And I used to think to myself, oh, God, anyone could do this. It's really just teaching them out of a textbook. It's not that fun. So I started focusing more on medical students. I found medical students more engaging for me because I'd asked, that asked more realistic questions. So instead of when I was talking about them, depression, them asking me, you know, can you tell me about uh, serotonin 5-HT2 receptors? Whatever. You know, the medical student would say, is depression really an illness? You know... I don't really get it. That asked much more broad questions that I found more realistic and more interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, I discovered that patients asked even more interesting <laughs> questions because they'd say, isn't psychiatry a load of bullshit? Really? You know, it's not really like surgery. And so, you know, I was forced to think even more broadly. And so early in my career, I got interested more in public stuff. So I started talking a lot to um, self-help groups and stuff like that. And, you know, things like um, Alcoholics Anonymous, the Anxiety Support um, the Anxiety Disorder Support Group. And then from there, someone asked me to do a community radio station. Mm-hmm. So I did community radio for about, for well, I ended up doing for 16 years on a station in Melbourne called 3 R, which then led to a lot of commercial radio stations. And I had a regular gig on a station with a guy called Steve Lizard. Some people remember, a prominent radio person. Mm-hmm. And from there, I got invited to go on the ABC in Melbourne. And so I had a weekly segment on the ABC for... 10 years until not that long ago when I retired, I quit radio too. And from there, I got interested in all that community side. So I decided to have a go at writing a general public psychiatry textbook. And so essentially my goal was to write Dummies Guide to Mental Health, but I just didn't want to, you know, go into the Dummies Guide process. So I wrote um, a book myself and called Mental Everything You Never Knew You Needed to Know About Mental Health. It did really well. It got published in China and in England and whatnot. But um, it was really interesting because I started writing it and I really had to transfer my style from academic writing to general public engagement writing. And so when I started doing it, I thought, hmm, 
It's not easy. So I went to do a writing course and I did it with this comedian in Melbourne called Catherine Devaney. She's a prominent comedian, feminist, really great human being all round. And uh, I clicked with her and we just became good mates. And she started being my writing mentor to try and get me to write in ways that was engaging to the public rather than to academic audiences. And uh, it was interesting. Um, I hope I'm not digressing too much, but one day I was chatting to one of my best mates who's a director of psychiatry um, one, at one of the biggest hospitals in Melbourne. This guy called Simon Stafrachi, great guy. And I'm chatting to him. And, he's, and I'd sort of taken a whole lot of time off that year to work on the book. And uh, I remember it clearly. I was in his office and I said to him, I'm a bit stuck, you know, it's really hard. And he said, bottom line, Steve, why the hell are you writing a book? And I said, I really want to buy something that's useful. I talk to patients every day. Um, I do it on the radio. Everyone tells me I'm good at communicating to general people. But So I want to put all the things that I've ever said to every patient down in a book. And he said, but the bottom line is another book by another doctor. It'll be condescending, patronising. He said, if you're really serious about doing this, you should um, do it in partnership with the consumer. He said, no one's interested in hearing stuff by doctors anymore unless it's in partnership with a consumer. You know, if you're really serious, get a consumer. And, you know, it was a light bulb moment. And I remember I walked out and I still was standing in front of the lift thinking, God, he's right. Do I know any consumers who I could really get along with well? And, of course, Catherine Devney, my writing mentor, she's had a, one of the reasons we clicked is she'd had mental illnesses and we talked heaps about mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I immediately pulled out my phone and I rang her up and I said, Dev, would you consider co-writing this book with me? She says, oh, I've been hoping you'd ask. I'm in. And so we wrote it together. And it was really interesting because she totally changed the way I'd write. So I'd write the initial draft of a chapter and then we'd spend hours at her house and she'd say, why did you put that there? It's boring. Put it at the end. People can read it if they want. Tell this bit here, the story about the time you saw that patient. That's great. Expand that to four pages. Let's rewrite it now. Mm-hmm. Steve, that word's boring. Make it an interesting word. That sentence sounds like a doctor. And it was all that. And that's and so that was how mental came about, and um, you know so we co-wrote it. You know she wrote a couple of the chapters all by herself. In particular, there's a chapter on well-being that includes everything from marijuana to sex toys. That was mind you, I got to put my input into it. You know there were some bits where I said, "Devil can't write that. It's not you know, it's it'll get me to the medical board. We can't write that." But she's incredibly passionate and really cluey and smart and just a you know wise person about mental health. So it was a lot of fun in the end. It's great fun. Again, a long-winded answer. But I strongly advise anyone who wants to have a go to do it. It's so much fun trying to develop alternative skill sets. Yeah, that's great. But, hey, you had it here first, guys. Medical students ask better questions than regs. Oh, they do. <laughs> well, the regs ask that, you know, they're, they're focused on exams. Med yeah. students are focused on what's real, what's not. You know, they're focused on exams too, but med students are much more, um, you haven't gone that far down the conveyor belt. You, you haven't drunk the Kool-Aid so much. Still fresh. Yeah, you're still fresh. You're still thinking like normal people. Because ah, yeah. if you think about it, how's, you know, you know, just as a, in a nutshell, medicine's taught a bit like a religion. Mm. We learn these textbooks like you learn Bibles, like you learn whatever your religious text is. Um, but that's how we learn it. And even though we know, we get taught at medical student that in you know 10 years' time, a certain percentage of the knowledge that we've learned today is going to have been proven to be wrong. The problem is we don't know what knowledge. Mm. And so, and also often we, you know, it's not until we've been doctors for five or six years that we start to appreciate the evidence base. You know, as medical students, you get taught the evidence base. Mm. But you're so busy learning the facts, the dose of the medication, how to do the assessments, examinations, the history taking, yeah. that you really learn it a bit by rote. And it's not really until you're five to ten years out that you get to start 
thinking about why do we believe this? Mm. Mm, the evidence-based for antidepressants isn't as good as I thought. <laughs> oh, number needed to treat's like 15. What? So 14 people I'm giving it to and it's not. And so you start yeah. thinking like that. So, so the med students still aren't too far down the rabbit hole. Mm. So they're still really broad. Yeah. You know, it, registrars get sucked right into the hole. You've got to be a great believer. You know, you've got to learn. You know, you, you, you can't really afford to question too much. You learn the evidence base, but, you know, you're really being indoctrinated. And it's not just mental health. This is even worse than surgery. You know, if you think our mental, our evidence base is poor, have a look at theirs. Oh. Um, you know, seriously. Yeah. You know, and you can go through all the different medical specialties and some are fantastic, infectious diseases. But then they've just, just got these little, tiny little cells called viruses and bacteria that they get to study. You know, Blind Freddy can study them. It's really easy. Heart, a bit harder. Liver, harder still. Neurology, oh, my God. They're, you know, it's incredibly hard to study the brain. Mm-hmm. And then you're getting onto surgery and psychiatry that are relatively new. You yeah. know, our evidence space only really dates back 50 years. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so yeah, so uh, med students are really good. And keep that breath. <laughs> try and, you know, try to always be respectful of the evidence mm. but appropriately cynical about it too. While we're on the topic about different specialties, how do you choose psychiatry? Yeah, that's hard. How do any of us choose our specialties? I sort of liked it before I went into medicine. So when I was at school, you know, I was tossing up between maths and medicine. You know, I really liked maths and I really liked, and but I really liked the idea of medicine because it was practical and also, you know, you, you can get, you know, I came from a fairly um, modest working class background and I really liked the idea of never having to worry about money. Mm. And so, um, but I also liked the science of it. Um, but I was really fascinated by human nature and my dad was an actor. So my dad, you know, we used to sit around the table and, you know, it'd be human nature. You know, how do you do this? You know, how do you look anxious? How do you look this? And what does it mean to be anxious? And so I was always fascinated by that. And so, but when, when I did medicine, of course, I liked different things. When I was in my clinical years in particular, you know, everything I did, I sort of liked. Like I do paediatrics and I go, oh my God, kids are so much fun. I'd like to be a paediatrician. I do cardiology and I go, oh my God, it's so exact and beautiful and clear and it's so algorithmic and, you know, chest pain, do this. Show this, give this drug. Show that, give that drug. 5,000 people in the study. But then at the end of the day, I was always fascinated by, you know, I was always drawn back to mental health. I really liked surgery too because it was so practical. I really loved, you know, hanging around doing something practical and so, you know, I liked it all, but, yeah, I was always coming back to mental health. And I also liked – the other thing I liked about psychiatry was it felt a bit like the Wild West, you know, smallish evidence base. You know, it was clear to me that the evidence was going to change lots in my 30-, 40-year career. And so, you know, I genuinely thought I was going to, you know, going to get to watch a lot of change. And, yeah. you know, got to watch some change, not as much as I would have liked, but some. And I still think there's heaps of perspective, you know, um, op- op- opportunity for change. You know, we still – have no idea about mental health we still don't know what depression is we still don't know what schizophrenia is we don't know the cause we don't really know exactly how to classify the symptoms we all know dsm is crappy but it's the best we've got everyone thinks we need a better classification system we just haven't got there yet so i you know some people hate that and they go oh psychs are low crap you know nothing's for sure Absolutely. Whereas I go, oh, psych's fantastic. So much uncertainty, so much scope for understanding. It's still got a lot of philosophy in it. It's still got bucket loads of science to go. We're only early in the journey. So that all that stuff, I actually, I loved it. You know, I like, I like going to work and knowing that I'm balancing various uncertainties. It's fun. Yeah. And I like the people. They tell you so much stuff. 
what advice do you have for students who are listening in who want to become a psychiatrist? Get as much breadth of experience as you can. You know, see as many patients as you can. You know, see if you like talking to them. You know, so when you go and get a history and if you're not in a rush and the patient looks like they want to talk and you've asked them about their hernia and you've had a look at it and you say, so, you know, tell us a little bit about your life. Where are you from? What sort of work did you do? How did you choose your husband slash wife slash partner or slash whatever? Um, you know, and see if you enjoy talking to people. See if it makes you curious or see if you like, this, you know, the scientific side and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, firstly decide if you like it. Mm. Um, and then if you want to do it, it's pretty actually easy, to be honest. You know, it's not that hard a specialty. The beauty of psychiatry is in the last 20 years, we've gone from the government saying we don't really need psychiatry. It's, uh, it's nice, but it's an unnecessary add-on. What we need is, you know, to save lives. Mm. Um, and we've gone a complete 180 to, oh, my God, mental illness is one of the biggest causes of morbidity in our community. Oh, and suicide's the commonest cause of death up to the age of 55. Bloody hell, we need to increase our mental health services across the board. So the need has just totally exploded. And so, you know, we used to be able to, um, we used to have 2% of, when I went through, 2% of, we needed 2% of graduates to do psychiatry to maintain our numbers. Now we need something like 8%. I forget, I don't know what the number is, I'm making yeah. it up, but it's it's at least four times at 8%, if not 10%, and it's just growing and growing and growing. So as a consequence, there's lots of jobs, heaps of jobs, and lots of spots in training programs. The only problem we have in our training programs now is, we, you know, there's all sorts of guidelines about how much experience people have and they've got to get through all the relevant rotations. So we're limited still because we have to get the um, jobs all funded and, of course, you know, the... There's, as everyone knows, there's splits between federal and state funding, and so it can be hard to get the training program. But the bottom line is, it's relatively easy to get into because we're constantly expanding our spots. Like, and it's exactly the same as any tra- training program: surgery, medicine, radiology, dermatology, you name it. Five years. At some stage, you do um, you do various hurdles along the way. At some stage, you do the exams, and then the last couple of years, you get to do lots of specialty, advanced training stuff. And then uh, once you qualify, <laughs> you can work anywhere. You can work into work into any job anywhere. There's jobs galore. There's public jobs, private jobs, jobs overseas. I've worked in so many places, and I've really only had three steady jobs: Austin, ten years; mm-hmm. Alfred, sixteen years; Peter Mac, six years so far, seven years almost. Um, and even then, I've popped out to all these places, taken a year off here, a year off there, six months here, six months there. Mm-hmm. Done sabbaticals in Alice Springs, Cairns, Darwin, India, New York. Um, taking time off to, you know, write um, books, you know, in various book chapters a couple of times, you know, semi-retired now just doing locums, still, you know, still on staff at Melbourne Uni and Peter Mac, but just small amounts of time and doing all my other stuff. There's so much scope. You know, I can just work as little or as much as I like. Um, I know it sounds like I'm a used car salesman trying to convince you um, (laughs) of how fantastic it is, but, you know, I really loved it. It's really interesting. As much work as you want. You know, you can go down, you can be as scientific as, you know, you can spend your whole life looking down microscopes as a psychiatrist if you want. You can spend your whole life talking philosophy. You can be completely into various forms of activism and social work and, you know, because we do all the biological, the psychological and the social. You can work in public hospitals, you can work in private. Most people do a combo. You can go to all sorts of programs, eating disorders, intellectual disability, whatever you like, drug and alcohol. Um, So there's just so much scope that... Um, you know, if you're the sort of person who likes talking to other people, you'll find something in psychiatry that you love. Or if you're a sciencey person, we've got so much scope because 
we're about 10, 15, 20% down the pathway of understanding mental illness. So, yeah, something for everyone. We'll throw in a set of steak knives. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. You have me sold. Yeah. <laughs> Great salesman. We have met in Broken Hill, and yes. I hear that you're welcoming around Australia. Yep. So um, what are the highlights of your career around Australia? Where have you been to? Well, so I started, you know, because I knew I wanted to retire and write a book and I knew I didn't have quite enough money. I'm 59 and I thought, and I've sort of saved enough money through super and stuff like that to last, I think, from when I'm 65 without earning money. But I thought up until then, I'll write my book and I'll just earn enough money to support my lifestyle. Um, that's my goal and, you know, really focus on writing the book. And so I need to probably do about two months of locums a year. So, so far, and I did some test locums in the year or two, just a month here or a couple of weeks here or there when I was still working just to see if I liked it because I didn't want to quit and then go, oh, my God, I hate locums. So I discovered I liked it. So I've done cans a couple of times. That was just fantastic. I've done inpatients there. And then I've done all the Indigenous jobs, West Cape, East Cape, into Torres Strait Islands, and they're great jobs. You go up there and it's a week on community, then a week in Cairns. It's fun. I've been to Darwin. Um, when COVID first broke out, I went up to Howard Springs and set up the mental health program for a month in 40-degree heat, um, living uh, on this beautiful farm and, you know, going to Howard Springs, that, you know, people probably know from all the news at the time, but it was a lot of fun and we were taking back people from all over the world a whole lot of which had mental health problems. So we had to set up pathways to get them assessed, you know, mainly telehealth and mm. support for families and stuff like that. And whilst I did it, I did a few sabbaticals in different places too, in Darwin and in um, in uh, Broome. Where else have I been for locums? I've done Albury in Melbourne. Um, I've done the Peninsula. Um, it's a place called Rosebud in Melbourne because I have a beach house down there. So I did some over there in summer. Um, What else have I done? I've done a few others, but, yeah. You know, you fly into somewhere, you work for anywhere between a week and the longest one I've done in a row is seven weeks. Mm. And it's just a lot of fun. You meet different people. You see different health systems. You get to work in a whole lot of different populations. Everyone's desperate and keen to have you, so they often give you the great jobs, like in Cairns. That's why I did East Cape and West Cape, Mm. you know, flying into these Indigenous communities that most Australians, let alone doctors, never get to go into and see and go in there with, Local people who know the services well, know every family in the mm. in the community, and you know they welcome you in because you're the visiting doctor. <laughs> it's just yeah. gold. And how are you liking Broken Hill so far? Well, I've never even been to Broken Hill. Is this your first time here? Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I, I never, you know, this locum. It was a last minute locum. I was actually meant to fly back to Bali last week to get back to writing because I'd finished mm. my. Um, I'd actually come back to Melbourne. I'd been back to Bali. And yeah. We came back to Melbourne because we bought tickets to Ed Sheeran. And so we came back for that. And then we were meant to fly back to Bali and this last minute Logan came up in Broken Hill. Mm. And uh, I've never been to Broken Hill. And it's an iconic town, you know, BHP and the history of yeah. mining. And I thought, oh, Broken Hill. Damn, I'd like to do that. And uh, so I said to my partner, oh, can you go back to Bali without me? I want to go to Broken <laughs> Hill for a week. And I came up here and it's been really interesting. You know, it's a, and I love the town. You know, the streets are so wide and there's some beautiful old architecture here, you know, built with all the mining money over the years. And so you walk down the street and see some amazing houses on tops of hills. And there's also, of course, you know, it's not quite as affluent as it was in the mining booms. And so there's some um, poor areas of town. There's real variation. But, um, you know, there's a huge community here. You know, it's a, it's obviously a vibrant town. It's not like a town that's struggling to have um, people living here. It doesn't seem anyway. 
boiling hot. It's been a heat wave all week. Oh, yeah, three degrees. Yeah, but um, it's beautiful. I really love it. The skies are so clear and the hospital's really nice. You know, it's a really, it's a small hospital, so it's got a really strong sense of community, but then um, really well organised, like the mental health service here. You know, they have beautiful handovers and the workers know every patient and they've been here a long time and the you know, managers, in, you know, everyone knows what's going on. You get great quality information. So... Yeah, it's really. I'm loving the. I'm loving Broken Hill. I'd come back here for sure. What's yeah. it been like as a medical student? Oh, yeah, it's been great. Everyone here is so supportive. Yeah, I've only been here for a month, but I already feel at home here. Really like it here. What's so the rotation for? How long? Um, I'm up here for the whole year as part of oh, really? fifth year um, extended rural placements with Adelaide Uni. Wow. There's so many other medical students here. Yeah, and they're all here for various amounts of times. I had such a great unis. experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we were med students, we got to do a little bit of um, rural, but not a lot. Mm. You know, of course, you know, in the 30 years since I've graduated, it's been one of the big pushes. And so there's all these, yeah. you know, um, various programs to get more people to come to the country. Mm. Great place to do it, though. Yeah. Outback Australia. <laughs> yeah, it's great. What's it like to work in the different states and different healthcare systems across Australia? You know, it's, it's all pretty similar, to be honest, these days. Mm. Yeah. It's really the main thing is working in different... Um, uh, programs, you know, like I've loved doing the Indigenous health. That's just mm-hmm. so much fun. I also spent a bit of time looking at um, when I was doing that sabbatical, where I was doing it, com- you know, at the same time I was going to say comorbid, was, you know, and concurrent with um, the some of the locums. I was looking at um, models of cancer and mental health care in Indigenous populations. So, you know, that was really so that was fun. Um, most of the services around Australia are pretty similar these days. They all have a case management model. They've nearly all got the same add-on services. They've all got integrated psychology, social work. They're mostly integrated with a whole lot of um, non-government organisations that provide various supports and rehab. And then the drug and alcohol is well integrated these days. When I was a junior doctor, drug and alcohol was totally separate, totally separate to mental health, and they hated each other. (laughs) So if you're in mental health, drug and alcohol wouldn't accept your patients. And if you're in drug and alcohol, mental health wouldn't accept your patients. And whereas these days it's beautifully integrated, which of course is so important because there's a huge amount of overlap. So I sort of love it. Um, The main thing that's different from place to place here is um, the sort of work you do and you get to see different parts of Australia. Mm. You know, I I love it. And I love hot weather. So that's why Mm. Cairns, Darwin, Broome, Alice Springs, Broken Hill, living half my year in Bali. I love hot weather. So I, I still haven't done a locum in Tassie, even though I'd love to, because I go down to Tassie to teach sometimes. Yeah. And it's so beautiful, but it's just a bit cold for me to do yeah. a locum. I keep thinking if I go there, I'll just get, I'm just going to freeze to death. Yeah. yeah. If you were Prime Minister for a month, what changes would you like to see in the mental health space? Okay, summary. Things I love. I love that the government's improving all the mental health acts around Australia when I was young. I always thought they were far too restrictive. I can't stand the fact that we give people things like ECT against their will. Mm. Um, I love ECT. If I get depressed, I'll, I'll take ECT if, I, if I'm serious enough, but I don't like doing things against people's will. I wish, I hope we move further and further towards autonomy, like in some countries where an independent third person makes a decision. The, the doctor shouldn't also be the jailer. I don't like the fact that I have to make someone involuntary and then say to them, I've just told you you can't go home. Now I want you to pretend that um, I'm purely here to care for you. You know, of course, it's a conflict of interest being both the jailer and the carer. So I'd like to see us move towards more um, uh, autonomy for patients and having the, um, the involuntary role handled by someone like a social worker. Not the per- I think it's a conflict of interest to... Um, for the patients to try and accept us as both their carer 
and the jailer. So I'd like to see that change. Obviously, I'd like to have better medications. Our medications aren't that good. You know, antidepressants work in about 60% of people and only about 50%. It'd be great if our antipsychotics didn't have so many side effects, et cetera, et cetera. We all want better science. That'll come. Um, what else would I like? I love the fact that we're really multidisciplinary. Mm. I love it. It's so much more satisfying to work with people with different perspectives. Yeah. You know, that is one of the best things about mental health. You've got this whole team around you. So I love that. I love the fact that the governments all around Australia, have, you know, we still argue and we've got good evidence to prove it, that mental health is grossly underfunded. You know, on a dollar-for-dollar dollar basis, for the amount of morbidity of, say, heart disease versus depression, depression gets funded at about 30 cents in the dollar to heart disease. And if you don't believe me, do this experiment that I've done a thousand times being a CL psychiatrist. Go to the psych ward in your hospital, walk around and take a mental picture. Look at the couches, look at the floors, look at the nurse's station, look at the windows and how clean they are. Close your eyes for the mental picture. Now, walk up to the cardiology unit and do exactly the same thing and tell me that mental health is funded in an adequate way. You'll see the mental health wards are drab mostly. The, you know, the other medical wards are beautiful. And it's the same with all the care and the medicines and everything that goes on in the community. Um, so we need more funding. The government's recognised that. Um, so I love that, you know, it's been improving a lot, but we're still not there. We are still constantly turning away patients. Mm. We need way more inpatient beds. We're constantly kicking patients out of the ward prematurely because we need space. We've got a queue of three people in ED. You know, some of them, you know, three. That's You know, sometimes there's 20 people in ED. Mm. Sometimes four or five of them have been there for 48 hours. So they're mentally unwell, depressed, distressed, anxious, and they're in an ED being kept awake 24 hours a day by noise and shouting and police coming in and out. It's a mess. So I'd still love to see all that stuff improve. What else would I see? You know, better funding for GPs. <laughs> GPs are so grossly underfunded and GPs do about 80% of the mental health in Australia. Mm. So psychiatrists and mental health services, we do the tip of the iceberg, the rest is done by GPs. So better funding for GPs to do mental health because most of them are really good at it these days and most of them are passionate about it. But their funding models, if they do mental health, they lose money. Mm. So um, better funding models for GPs. Um, more, what else? more consumers. The more consumer consultants we have, the quicker all of this stuff will change. Because if you're a politician, here's a little anecdote, if you're a politician and say, I'm a psychiatrist, they say, I'll call you back in two weeks. You ring up and you say, um, I'm running a uh, non-government organisation helping people with mental health problems, they'll ring you back in one day. You ring them up and say, I'm a patient, I'm a voter, and I've got a mental illness, they'll put you through that day. So we need more consumers to represent their views and also to help us understand their perspective. For too long, all healthcare workers, doctors in particular, are probably guilty to a degree of only listening to the medical perspective. And I think when we incorporate the consumer perspective, it helps every one of us, helps us understand them better, helps them understand what we're trying to do better, brings us all closest together. So they're the things I'd go for. Better consumers, better funding for GP, better science for us, fund more science, and uh, yeah, and uh, keep building the services. Yeah. Okay. It's a big wish list. Am I being greedy, Amos? Am I being greedy? Oh, uh, I reckon. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> always no, no. You can always strive for better. And hopefully, um, things will change. What are your plans for retirement, Steve? Well, once I finish this book, and it's mm. a bestseller, and I make like $10 million, <laughs> like, um, you know, what's her name who made uh, wrote Harry Potter. I know the chances are small, but I like to dream big. Um, no, but otherwise, my um, plans, you know, 
we're um, um, I mean, I know this is going to sound like a woke cliche, but we're unbelievably privileged in Australia mm. to be doctors. You know, once you study medicine, you get this respect your whole life. Every room you walk into, people think that you're smart and that you're a good person because you're caring for others. Mm. You're involved in an industry that cares for others. And, um, you know, if you're lucky enough in your life, you balance it so that you go for the holy trinity. Um, uh, a good job um, with good colleagues in a good cause. Mm. And mostly in medicine, that's pretty easy to achieve. And so, you know, we're so lucky. And then, but at the same token, you're only, you know, as far as I believe, anyway, you're only on the planet once. You want to get the most out of it. And so I've loved my career, loved every second of it, but I've done it for 30 years, so I want to try other things. So that's why I'm trying to write a novel. Um, that's why I want to live in a different culture for a while, you know, just to see what it's like. Yeah. So that's why I'm trying to live in Bali half-time and, you know, I'll probably try and settle in there a bit longer, although I've still got, you know, I've got an elderly dad and stuff, so I've still got lots of commitments in Melbourne. Um, so I'm coming back and forward a lot and I still need to earn money at least for the next five years. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I really want to experience a different culture. I've done heaps of travel, you know, because being a public hospital doctor for 30 years in Melbourne where we have continued CME, we have CME money to travel. So I've been to conferences in every country in the world for the last 30 years. Great. So I've done lots of travel and I've taken a few breaks to travel around places like India and South America and stuff. So, you know, I don't really want to travel heaps, but I want to see what it's really like getting to learn another culture. Mm. And so I'm trying to learn Indonesian. I've been practicing every day on my Duolingo. I'm up to 205 days in a row. So I'm trying to do all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, and, and otherwise I want to sort of explore less academic, more creative things. Yeah. So if I get this book done, then my next goal is to write a song. I've been a drummer for many years and I've, I'm terrible, but I try and learn some other instruments. So then if I write my novel, then my goal, if I still live long enough, mm. is to try and write a song, some songs. I do try this occasionally. I'm not, and I tried to learn some songwriting and a bit more music production. Um, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't mind other. I want to try creative things rather than more academic stuff. Yeah. You know, 30 years of academic stuff, you know, I figure I'm just going to try different paths and, you know, just squeeze every uh, every uh, um bit of juice out of the orange of life um, before uh, my before my number comes up. That's roughly it. Have fun. It's good to have uh, interests outside of medicine. Yeah, that's what I yeah. reckon. Yeah, definitely do it. Thank you so much, Steve. I had a wonderful time chatting with you. We'll see you guys at our next podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Good luck, everyone. I'm Amos Lee. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope it got you psyched about a future in psychiatry. This podcast was produced with financial support provided by the Psychiatry Interest Forum, PIF. The views shared through the podcast are those of the contributors and not necessarily the views of PIF. Follow AUPS on Facebook and Instagram at AUPS underscore. Send in your thoughts by messaging us on our socials. If you found this episode helpful or interesting, help us by sharing it and tagging us. We hope you tune in next time to get psyched about psych.